Well, I'm glad to be here with you tonight. I'm glad that you are here. She's not going to like me for this, but I want to give a special welcome to my mother-in-law, who's in the very back. Allison's mom is in the back right there. Uh, so if you get a chance, go by and thank her for playing a part in bringing Allison into this world uh, for me. So uh, glad that she's here with us tonight, all the way from California. Um, so uh, I don't know about you, I'm not one of those people that can remember the like date that I was converted. I remember the day, like I remember what happened, but I don't remember like the, the exact date and time and all that. Um, and you might be one of those people, and uh, so I envy you for knowing all that information. You probably have it written on the uh, inside cover of your Bible, just so you never forget. Um, I don't remember that exactly, but Charles Wesley is one of those people that remembers the exact day and time of his conversion, because it was, it was pretty, uh, he remembers it for a reason. So Charles Wesley was uh, was a member of the was a member of the church. He played a large part in founding the Methodist denomination, and he, you know he was involved in the church, teaching and preaching and all that for twenty years. Uh, actually, before he came to faith in Jesus, he came to faith in Jesus twenty years after teaching the Bible and sitting under sermons and being involved in the life of the church. And it was on May 21st of 1738 at 8.45 p.m. Uh, that he uh, came to know Jesus. He describes it that his heart was strangely warmed and that the spirit melted away his unbelief. And it was during a sermon that he was listening to. And I think, you know, what that illustrates for us, and, you know, I've, I've, I've heard of other people like this where, you know, they got saved, like, in their own sermon. <laughs> They're preaching and they, like, somehow, like, came to faith in Jesus through their own sermon. But I think what that, what that shows is that doesn't, that doesn't, you know, that doesn't cause reason for us to doubt. Like, oh, am I that guy? You know, I've been in the church my whole life. That's not the point. The point is that we can miss it really easily. The point is that uh, works righteousness, our default mode, can be overwhelming to the point that we miss the most basic and foundational element of the faith. It's so foundational and so elementary that like we just stack all these other things on top of it to where we, we forget about it. And always there are these other blocks like spiritual disciplines and church and being a good sermon listener and being involved in a D group. It, it, all those good things, but they become all these blocks that end up actually blocking our vision of the foundation. And so we have this passage here in Romans uh, where Paul brings to us uh, he brings us back to really almost the very beginning. Brings us back to Abraham. Uh, if you're not familiar with the story of Abraham, I'm not going to go into full detail, but uh, Abraham is about as far back as you can pull in the Old Testament. Um, this, this is as early as Genesis 12. We're talking really early. Um, this is before God had given the law. This is before God had come to his people, because they didn't exist yet. His, Israel didn't even exist. Abraham is the beginning of Israel. They didn't even exist. So there was, there was nothing that God had given to a people, to a person, and said, do this and I'll accept you. That, didn't even, that wasn't around yet. And so Paul takes this, and when, as he explains it, it becomes almost just like, duh, like, Okay, yeah, that makes sense. But somehow we like miss it. And he, and he brings us to uh, his original hearers and it comes to us now because we have the same tendency. 
We're like a tire that ran over a nail and we're just kind of leaking air the whole time. We need, we need to be refilled back and we need that patched up and brought back to the foundation of it. So he pulls all the way back to Abraham. And so we'll, we'll uh, walk through that in more detail. But what Paul is doing is he's, he's removing really the last leg of the table of works righteousness. So it can't stand because he knows that his audience, largely Jewish, would look back to Abraham and say, well, you know, like Abraham, the reason that he was righteous is because he obeyed the law. I mean, he was a really good guy. He's, he's our father. Like we, we, you know, we, the reason that we have the things that we have are, are because of him. And we really trace our life and kind of form our life around how he lived his life. And Paul takes that out and he's, and he's going he's gonna to say no. That's not how it works. You, you have missed it. He, he's realigning us. And I think that we, we need that tonight. Like, I need that tonight. I need to be realigned. Like, I can't tell you enough times. I can't be told enough times that I'm not saved by my performance. I'm saved by Jesus' performance on my behalf. Like, you can't hear that enough times. That, that truth, that story is, is so beautiful that it can capture your imagination forever. And it does. If that has captured your imagination, you know what I'm talking about. Like you wake up in the morning and maybe it's not the first thing you're thinking about, but like to some degree, this doesn't ever get old. It, it grows up in you and just fills you with awe and it motivates you and it changes you and it transforms you. And if you have not placed your faith in Jesus... And you don't know that, that is, that's the good news of what we find in Romans, that it is available to all, anyone who would trust in Christ, it is available to us all. So what we see here in Romans uh, chapter 4 is this, this is, this is the really big thing that we see, and we'll, we'll break this down a little bit, but we see that salvation, opposed to what we would naturally think and what we, what we so are so prone to pull back to is that salvation is given to those who stop working for it. Salvation, God's righteousness, comes to those who shut up and who stop all their worrying and fidgeting before God. Salvation comes to those who receive it as a gift. And that is the glorious truth of the gospel that is enough to literally and radically change your entire life. And you know what I'm talking about if it has. That truth that, that God loves me because of Jesus, not because of me, as a gift that comes to me freely, not by my works, that will change your life so we see three things uh, in this passage in Romans 4. We see why we are saved. We see when we are saved. And we see how we are saved. So those three things. Why we're saved, when we're saved, and how we're saved. So the first, why are we saved? Look with me. Uh, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 8. That's the first section. Why are we saved? What's the, what's the reason? What Paul hit on it a little bit uh, in, in the passage before this. And he's hitting it again because we cannot, uh, we cannot miss this. Verse 1 says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? 
For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. So he is pulling back to Abraham, Old Testament, okay? For us, this is a live issue. We still have a lot of confusion about like how this all worked in the Old Testament. Uh, like so back then, they, they were saved by killing goats and birds and stuff. And now we're not like that stopped somehow. Now it's because of Jesus. But I don't, so back then it was works. Now it's faith. And that was, uh, that was what the Jews, that's what they looked to. They said, yeah, that's how it is. And I think we, we even get that misconception. Yeah, like all the Old Testament, like they came to faith because like they obeyed what God said to do in all the law. Um, And now that's not the case for some reason. Um, But what we see here is we get realigned. We get straightened back up because that's, that's not gospel. (laughs) That's nothing to be happy about. That's nothing to be uh, proud of. What we see rather is not by works, but even for Abraham, it was by faith. And so just as Abraham reminds us of this and brings it to us once again, you and I need this. We need community. Like we need people around us um, reminding this to us, bringing this back to us. We need discipleship groups. We need Sunday school. We need community worship. We need one another. Because we, we do so often, we're, we're leaky and we're, we get out of alignment. We begin to think that it's by our works and not by. So there's, there's two things that, there's two times when I can really remember in my life that this, they're very small things, but they're very, very profound and they've stuck with me for years of, of times that this happened. When someone like a Paul came to me and just showed me, like just took, just took the shade off my eyes and showed me what was obvious. Um, something that I knew, but wasn't trusting in in that moment, wasn't real to me in that moment. Uh, there was one time, it was in between my freshman and sophomore year of college. I was doing an internship at a church in Columbia, South Carolina, and uh, was living with, uh, living with the youth pastor and one of his friends, and his name was James. And James uh, was a guy who came to faith uh, by reading the book of Romans, actually, like on his own, in his apartment. Uh, it's a pretty crazy story. He ended up becoming this really, um, not popular, but he became an evangelist that was really effective um, and still is. And so, um, but we were just, we were just, I think we were eating breakfast or something one morning and uh, we were just talking and, and I forget the exact context of the conversation. It was something along the lines of just how like, how blurry and muddied it is, is in a church of like, so what does it really take to become a Christian? Like what? What are the things? And he just, and he said something that I'd heard before, but it just, it clicked in a new way. He said, it's just, it's, it's not, it's not complicated. It's simple. Repent and believe. And I remember he said that, and it's like I'd never heard it before. And it's so, that's so foundational. And I'd heard it so long ago that got covered up with all these other blocks of things that that foundational truth, which is it, that is the gospel, had gotten uh, complicated in my mind and covered up. And uh, because he brought that to me again, the shades were lifted and I saw it freshly and newly. I remember another time, it was probably about a year later, I was in, uh, I was in the drive-thru uh, with one of my friends. His name was Fred. This was probably my sophomore or junior year of college. 
we're at Starbucks, and I was, you know, like a, you know, a good Christian boy. I was telling him, I was confessing my sin of not doing my devotions enough. And because uh, he asked me how I was doing, and so that was my sin. I've not been doing my devotions enough. I'm a really bad sinner. Um, so I was telling him that, and, and I really did actually feel bad that, you know, I wasn't making time for this, you know. I'm feeling pretty condemned and guilty about it. And I remember he just, he just looked at me and said, we were parked, you know, we weren't driving, we were parked in the drive-thru. He looked at me and said, he's like, God doesn't love you. He doesn't love you anymore if you read your Bible more. He doesn't, he doesn't love you any less if you read your Bible less. And it's like, duh, I knew that. But for some reason, I'd, I'd come to believe that. And I think many of us in this room, there, there are places in our lives, spaces in our minds that we've come to believe uh, things that are not true and we need to be realigned. And so... Um, so the, my question is, do you have people around you? They're, they're here. They're offered to you. Do you have people around you that can bring those things to you? And also, are you that for someone else? Because God uh, gives us to himself or gives himself to us through uh, the local body. And so just as Abraham was bringing this to a, uh, to a group of Christians who already knew this, he was bringing it to them again, we need it once again. So in verse 3, it says this, for what, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So he said Abraham was not justified. He was not declared right. He was not right in God's eyes because of what he had done. Right? We, we, we learn at the end of chapter 3 that, that the justification, being declared right, made right, comes freely for no reason at all. You don't contribute to it a bit. I don't contribute to it a bit. It comes freely. And so here we see uh, a little bit more on that. So this is uh, Paul quoting from as all the way back in Genesis 15. Again, before the law was given, uh, before any structure was given that could be perverted as a way in which God was saying, this is the ladder of which you climbed to get to me. said, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. It's credited to him. So what this doesn't mean, faith does not result in righteousness. It also doesn't mean uh, that faith is a form of righteousness, but rather that faith is counted as righteousness. What that means is God counts us, he considers us, he treats us as if we were actually right as if we were morally upstanding, as if we had not done anything rebellious, as if we had not chosen other gods, other spouses besides him. And it's counted, it's given to him. It's given to you, credited to you. This is passive. We are passive in this. In receiving righteousness, we're passive. We're not active I mean, just think about, I mean, if you just stop and think for a second, like how, this, this is the kind of thing that is so unnatural. It's so unnatural that this is why we have to be constantly realigned. Because it is so unnatural, because you don't hear this anywhere else. No other faith system is saying this, even close. Our hearts aren't going to just wake up one morning and say, yeah, this is how it works. It comes to us from the outside, not from the inside. It comes at us from the outside. We receive it passively. It's, faith is like an IV through which God sends to us healing medication. 
Faith isn't a work that we do. It's, some, it's, it's the means by which we receive righteousness. God's being made right for us. More so, in verse 4, it, it's a gift. It's not a wage. It's not something that you work for. Right? I mean, I think about your first paycheck. How proud you were of that. My, uh, my first paycheck was from Chick-fil-A. Uh, I worked at Chick-fil-A for a couple years in high school. Uh, I got a job there because I needed to pay for prom. Uh, that's why I got a job. I didn't think about the fact that when prom's done and paid for, I had to keep working. And so I got sucked into working there for like three years. Um, but I remember getting my first paycheck. You know, it's like $53 or something. You know, I'm just, you know, this is the best thing in the world. I've, I've earned this, you know. This isn't money from mom and dad. Like I worked for this, you know. Proud of this thing. I almost like didn't want to cash it just so I could hold on to the check. And... Um, you know, I, I, that, is, that is often how we think of our relationship with God. It's like he owes us something. It's like, you know, I, I did something for you. I showed up. I prayed. But no, it's not. It, that's not how it works. It says in verse 4, Now to the one who, uh, sorry, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Salvation is a gift. Even this, when we think about it like this, salvation doesn't begin with our faith and result in God giving us grace. It begins with God's grace and results in us having faith. It starts with God. It doesn't, you don't initiate it. He initiates it. And, and I thank God that it's that way because if, if it was waiting till I initiated it, it wouldn't have happened. And, you know, I think it's, it's, it's not like grace is the cherry on top of the salvation cake. You know, it's like, well, okay, I did all this other stuff, but, you know, God just is kind of nice to me and he's going to let me into heaven. No, like grace is, it's the flower in the cake. It's, it's the first and biggest ingredient in the whole thing. Like you don't have it without that. You don't have salvation without God's unmerited, free, gracious, kind forgiveness and love. You, you don't, we don't have it. But what we do have is a God who lavishes that on us. He is wasteful with his grace on us. And he likes doing that. He's pleased to do that. We're not a pain in God's side. He, he, he delights to do that for us. He wants to do that for us. And, you know, like in, in terms of thinking about salvation being our wage versus a gift, it's not like us being given righteousness is, is less like payday and more like transplant day. It's a gift. You're, you're getting a new heart. This isn't God giving you what you deserve. This is you laying on a bed about to die in need of a new heart. And God graciously gives you his own transplants that to you, credits that to you. Even more so, okay, if we want to get even, even more of this, verse 5, when it says this is faith, or sorry, righteousness is credited, it's given, not to the one who is godly, which is what we think. Like, well, I'm godly. That's why God likes me. He says, no, it's God justifies the ungodly. Jesus talks about that himself. He, he didn't come for, for the, the ones that have already been healed. He came for the sick. 
Do you see yourself as sick outside of Jesus? Do you see yourself in that way? Do you see yourself as the ungodly one that God freely justifies? This all comes to the one who does not work. Doesn't work. I mean, I think about the parable in in, in the Gospels when it talks about the different workers in the fields. There's the one that works all day. There's one that works like a half day. And then there's one that works like 30 minutes. And they all get the same paycheck. You read that and you get upset. You're like, that's not right. Well, yeah, it's not right if it's, if it's based on wage. If it's not based on wage, what we've worked, and it's just based on what the master wants to freely give us, then that's, that's freeing. So if I asked you, why are you saved? What would you say? What's the reason that you are saved? You personally Tim Keller explains uh, three common answers to that question of, of why you are saved. The, the first one is this. First response might be something like, I'm saved because I've tried my best to be a good Christian. Well, what that is, that's, that's just straight up salvation by works. Or, I'm saved because I believe in God and try to do his will. So that's, that's a mixture of Works, salvation by works, and faith. So, so the two kind of together. Or the third, um, I'm saved because I believe in God with all my heart. That one sounds pretty good. But that's salvation, that's salvation by faith as a work. That's seeing your belief, your faith, as the reason that God has credited to you righteousness. But that's not what we see here. It comes to the one who does not work. Not even the work of faith. Rather, what we should say, the, the reason that I, that I am saved, the reason that you are saved, is because Jesus died for my sins. He died for your sins. And that is given to me freely by God's grace and through faith. And in this, there's a, there's a glorious release here in the gospel. We are completely cut off. There's, there's no strings attached here. We are completely released from having to look at ourselves. But we are free to look outward to Christ and what he has done for us. Martin Luther talks about how we are simultaneously righteous and simultaneously sinners. Because it is God who justifies the ungodly. We're we're both. We're justified sinners. And so here, what we see is that it's not enough to simply believe in a God, and it's not simply enough to believe in a God who saves, but we believe in a God who saves by grace, by free, unmerited love. Then he goes on to talk about David. He says, David's saying the same thing. The Old Testament is not salvation by works. It's always been by faith, by trust in God and his promise to us, by trust in his word. So why are we saved? Because it's a gift. That's why you're saved. Because God gave you a gift. Because he loved you when you were ungodly. The second thing 
When are we saved? What's the, what's the, what's the timeline here? What do we see in verses uh, 9 through 17? We see in verse uh, 10, how then was it counted to him? How was righteousness counted to Abraham? Was it before or was it after he was circumcised? So was it before or was it after he did something uh, for God? Before he was obedient? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. It's before you've done anything to merit his love, to merit his affection. He sets his heart on you because he loves you, period. That's it. Not because he saw some glimmer of like promise in you. Not because you hadn't done this really bad thing that so-and-so has done. We're released from that. And we're, th- and we're thrown into the abyss of God's amazing grace and his love. Matt Chandler uh, has been quoted saying, God doesn't love some future version of you. Like it's not after you have done what he asked you to do. It's before. It's before he even told you what to do. Before you even knew what to do. And before you came about the ability to, to act on that. So we see in uh, verses 13 uh, through 17 here that the way that Abraham was saved was through trust in the promises of God. It says promise uh, a number of times. Verse 13, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. That is what he clung to, what God said that he would do that he would send a descendant from his offspring, even though he was 100 years old and it, just, it didn't even make sense. Trusted in the promise of God. So whose promises are you trusting tonight? We're, we're all, there's promises coming our way all day, every day. I'm getting hit with promises, whispering, slithering promises all day. You trust in the promise of popularity? You trust in the promise of pleasure, of partying? I mean, what, what, what are the promises that you're clinging to? Saying, I, I don't see it. I don't see it yet, but you're telling me that I can get what I want if I, if I go this way. If I, if I cling to this, jump on that rope and swing, then that's it. But we see that we are saved by trusting God's words to us, what he has said, what he has promised to us. In verse 16, it's a beautiful verse. It says, and that is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham. This promise, it rests, he reminds us, it doesn't rest on faith. On our faith, it rests on grace. God's initiative. All of this, it it leans on that. It's built on that. And so that can be uncomfortable. It can be uncomfortable to receive grace. It can be uncomfortable for someone to willingly get involved in the mess that you've made and and help you clean it up and clean it up for you. But that's what God does willingly. 
And then even more so, he goes on to say that, to, to drive this home, that God has nothing to work with in us. He's got nothing. Verse 17, as it was written, I've made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom you believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not exist. One commentator said it like this, God creates out of the nothingness of people's empty sinful lives a new vibrant spiritual life. It's the same, same phrase, same idea as back in Genesis when God creates the universe out of nothing. He's got nothing to work with. And in us, he's got nothing to work with. There's nothing there. And yet he calls into being things that don't exist. He calls into being belief in us that did not exist before. And so the most impressive creation out of nothing wasn't the universe. The most, inc- the most impressive creation out of nothing is you. It's me. God has created in us what was not there before. He didn't fan into flame something that was there. He put it there. And so third, we see uh, not only why we are saved, that it's because it's a gift, when we are saved, before our obedience, before we've done anything, but how we are saved. We are saved not by our faith, but by the object of our faith. And so we see a few things here. As we wrap up, we see a few things here in this last section, uh, 18 through 25, of what it means to believe in God. The first thing that we see in verse 19 is that we give up self-trust. We give it up. Look with me in verse 19. Abraham did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. So he's looking at his situation. He's looking at his reality. And he, and he, and he doesn't trust in what he sees and what seems to be real. Or what he feels. I mean, he's like, I'm, I'm 100 years old. How's this going to happen that God is going to give me descendants? I'm, I'm way past that. And my wife is too. And so I think so often we think that faith is, is opposed to reason. But really, faith is opposed to feelings. I think so many times we, we, we get caught up in our feelings of like, I don't feel like I love God. I don't feel like doing anything for God. I don't feel conviction. I don't, all this, and we're looking inward. We're, we're looking so deep inward that we don't even have a sight of Jesus at all. And so that's, that's what's been gifted to us in the gospel is, is the opportunity to look outward from ourselves and to Christ. We're freed from having to look to ourself. John Calvin says this. He says, let us also remember that the condition of us all is the same with that of Abraham. All things around us are in opposition to the promise of God. He promises immortality And what we are surrounded with is mortality and corruption. He declares that he counts us just, but we are covered with sins. He testifies that he is propitious and kind to us, but outward judgments threaten his wrath. What then is to be done? We must with closed eyes 
pass by ourselves and all things connected to us that nothing may hinder or prevent us from believing that God is true. It it makes me think of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. He says, I don't care what you think about me. I I don't take your judgment of me into account. I don't even take my own judgment of myself into account. I don't care what I think about myself. I only care what God the Father thinks about me. So we are freed from self-trust and given over to God trust, to trust in him and, 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 and to say that you know better than I do. You know better than I do. And faith, it, it lets God define reality for us. I think so we live, in, we live in realities that are dictated by our feelings. And we build up this construct of the world that, that God's interaction with me is based on my life and my situation. We base our reality on that. We base our reality on just common sense. We base our reality on popular opinion or people's opinion of us. But God has an, a, a reality that supersedes all of that, is more captivating than all of that. And that reality is that he doesn't care what you do for him that doesn't merit his love for you. If that was the case, there wouldn't be anybody in the kingdom of God. We all get in through the same door and that is Christ Jesus through his blood, through his life, his resurrection. And so we cling to him. We trust in him. We let go of all of the things that we would cling to. So why are we saved? It's because God has grace for us. We receive it through faith. And God has always been on the giving end of righteousness. And we have always been and will always be on the receiving end of righteousness. We thank God that that is the way that it is set up. So let's pray. Father, we are so glad that you have made a way for sinners like me and like us, to be brought to life, to receive forgiveness, to be brought into uh, the true and beautiful reality, which is the life and death of Christ and all the spiritual blessings that we have in him. God, thank you for gifting this all to us for free, not as a wage, but freely. God, we we pray that your spirit would take this truth and drive it deep within our hearts. Would you help us to close our eyes and pass over ourselves and look only to Christ Jesus? And in so doing, would he fuel us to worship you, fuel us to obedience, fuel us to love you and to love our neighbor? God, help us not to miss the foundation of it all. We love you, and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.